Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1545, 1545. Boy, I almost... Almost got that a little backwards there. Anyway, it's been a long time. Got a lot of episodes under our belt for sure. Make sure you're going back to check those out. If you're new to the show, be sure you check out jasonhartman.com slash start. And that is our quick start of all, well, not all, but many of the fundamental investing and economic concepts that we teach. And then of course, uh, listen to the regular show five days a week. I've got my favorite rabbi, Evan, here with us. Evan, how you doing? I'm doing great, Jason. It's always good to talk to you and to learn with you and to be with you. It's it's great. It's good weather. What, how can I complain? <laughs> well, living in Chicago, yes, good weather is not super common there. Good stuff. Well, hey, the presidential election is in full swing. And this, I don't know, this may be the first time we don't see a presidential debate. When are we going to see some debates? Uh, I think Joe Biden will likely fall asleep and Trump will have zinger after zinger and just, just nail him. And that's why the Democrats don't want to see Joe Biden in a debate. But Kamala Harris is out with her economic policies, and she would very likely end up as president pretty shortly afterwards if, if Biden gets elected, because, hate to say it, Joe, I don't think you're going to make it. You're half asleep now. I just can't imagine. But listen to this. I mean, folks, this would be disastrous for the economy. It would be a disastrous. And these are stated, published plans for taxes, right? How do you raise all this revenue for your ridiculous spending programs? How do you do that? Well, first, you raise the income tax, the top income tax rate, from the existing rate of, I think, 37% to 39.6%. And then you raise the corporate taxes to drive business away and incentivize them to offshore their as much of their business as they can, to stick it in Ireland, in the Netherlands, in any tax haven they can find. You incentivize that behavior by raising corporate taxes to 35%. That would be far and away the highest in the world. And then, Evan, do you, are you looking at the same thing I'm looking at with the other stuff? So you can share a couple of those bullet points. Well, the, the raising income taxes over people making $100,000 by 4%. How ridiculous. I mean, we came out, we had the strongest economy in decades. And then we went through a coronavirus, a pandemic. How could we then raise taxes again? Yeah. I mean, I, I just... And Kamala Harris comes out of California, where, who, where the economy has been plummeting. People are paying over 50% in combined tax rate. I mean, 
it's almost insanity. Yeah. When you combine state and federal income taxes, if you're in the higher brackets in the Socialist Republic of California, you're paying more than half of your money to the government. So that means you are working more than six months a year just to pay Uncle Sam. Okay, so... so I always look at the upside because income property is such a durable asset that even if Democrats win, our properties will still perform well. Our tenants, what if student loans are forgiven? I know my tenants have a big student loan payment. I see it on the credit reports all the time. If that's forgiven... I can raise rents. They, I mean, so there's always an upside. Right. No, there is. There's always an equalizing factor. There's always an upside to everything, but it requires you to adjust. And the thing in any market, in any economy, with any new policy, the thing that really hurts people is the transition stage. So it's that transition stage where you can't adjust right away, where you're maybe under the burden of, you know, this new regime or whatever it is, anything in the market in general, right? Interest rate changes, uh, policy changes, whatever they are. But let's just make sure we reiterate that. So an additional 4% tax on $100,000 plus household income. Okay. So that means if each spouse is making $51,000 and they make $102,000, they would be subject to an additional 4% tax because Kamala Harris and Joe Biden think you must be rich if you're making over $100,000 household income. That's not individual income. It's household income. Unbelievable. That would be terrible for the economy. Okay. Financial transaction tax on stocks, 0.2%. So now, yes, you have discount brokers that trade very cheap or not really free. We saw that with the Robinhood accusations or allegations that are out recently. It's never free. Folks, just remember, when something is free, you are the product. <laughs> and and that's the way it works in the Google and Facebook universe. And that's the way it is. It's nothing is ever really free. Just always understand that. But 0.2% on every stock trade. And then a fin- financial transaction tax on every bond trade of 0.1% for trading bonds. And doesn't say it on what we're looking at, Evan, but of course, and we talked about this on the show before, of course, sleepy Joe Biden wants to eliminate the 1031 tax deferred exchange. Listeners, if any of you are listening to this show and even considering if you have this far out fantasy about how you might just vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, you should not be thinking about real estate or succeeding in personal finance or growing your wealth because they're going to do everything they can to stop it. Yeah, that's what they're going to do. All right. (laughs) Evan, enough of my rant there. So tell us about this other casualty of the pandemic, and that is this gorgeous hotel in Chicago. Tell us about that. Well, there's this, it's a, called the Palmer House Hotel, and it was built as the residence of a industrialist named Potter Palmer, who was a friend of Marshall Field and all those guys who helped start Chicago or build up Chicago. Beautiful hotel. I've conducted many weddings there. I've been to meetings. As a, as a rabbi. As a yes. rabbi, yeah. yeah. 
And it was owned by Hilton, but then it was managed by Hilton and had some private investors. And it's just been gutted and $300 million in debt. And they're closing it. They just can't keep it open. I, I don't know what they're going to do. It really takes up almost an entire city block. So I don't know if they'll eventually create a condo building out of it, uh, but they're they're closing and it's a huge loss. I mean, just you Google Palmer House Chicago and you see some of the pictures. It's stunning. Yeah. And and actually Bing it or DuckDuckGo it. Don't Google it, but, but whatever. <laughs> and, you know, when he says absolutely stunning listeners, that's an understatement. This hotel is gorgeous. It is gorgeous. And it really goes to show you how sad it is when we get into bad economic times. Now, of course, it's uneven. There are always opportunities. But it really creates a loss of resources, a misallocation of resources. Because this beautiful hotel, why should you need to convert this to condos or a shopping center or some other use? It's perfect like it is. You know, this is not, by the way, an example of creative destruction. This is just an example of destruction. So terrible news and we'll certainly miss this gorgeous, gorgeous hotel. Evan, on another note, and we've got to get to our guest today, which is George Gammon coming back to the show. Did you enjoy his presentation at Meet the Masters? I did. And I can't tell you, I've talked to so many clients who came to us from your conversations with George. And these clients, the people who follow George, they are smart. I agree. These are investors. I have had some wonderful conversations about fiscal policy with them. They understand income property. I mean, I'm very grateful to George. I mean, grateful to you for the friendship and and George for educating his clients. It's wonderful. Yeah, George has done a great job and we really appreciate all of his viewers and and listeners uh, coming over and buying properties through our network and, and coming to our events like Meet the Masters where he recently spoke. And, you know, one of the predictions that I made about the pandemic is of these six really tidal waves of of change that are going on in the economy and in the housing market is multi-generational living. And Naresh posted an article in our content group. You probably saw it, Evan. And it talks about how not, this isn't really what I talked about in my prediction, but it's it's one of the uh, parts of it, really. A Pew Research survey that showed that a majority get that, a majority of young adults in the U.S. live with their parents for the first time since the Great Depression, not the Great Recession 10, 12 years ago, the Great Depression in the 1930s. And this is really more of that concept of the boomerang generation. But, you know, look at this is normal around the world. It's it's the U.S. is one of a fairly small number of countries where it's customary for you to turn 18 or 20 or 22 and move out. You know, normally you'd live with your parents till you get married, right? In a lot of places, okay? That's, I I don't want to say normally, but in a lot of places, that's the way it works, right? In a lot of cultures. And then the elders live at home with you as they age. And, you know, in the U.S., you send them off to an assisted living, but the assisted living is really under attack because of the pandemic and all of the deaths and infections. Another one. You you don't want to put grandma in a place like that. That's Um, another one you predicted a year ago, saying assisted living is not going to be a good investment. 
Yeah. You were right in that one. Yeah. And I want to make a distinction about that. You know, when we throw words around like assisted living, it's kind of like saying commercial real estate, right? right. It, it's I, I don't want to make that sound like a blanket thing. It's certain types of assisted living where the more people you have there and the closer the quarters, of course, the more dangerous it is, the more high risk it is. But I do think no matter what, there are more people aging in place and there are more technological tools to make this possible, right, than there ever have been before. I mean, look, you can buy uh, your aging parents an Apple Watch like this that I'm pointing at if you're watching me on video, <laughs> by the way. And, you know, that can really protect them in a lot of ways. And it's like the old thing, you know, we all saw that old commercial from years ago where the lady's wearing the medic alert or whatever it is around her neck, right, that big giant pendant, and she pushes the button and says, I've fallen and I can't get up. Well, now the Apple Watch or many smartwatches, really, I shouldn't just pick Apple because frankly, Apple products are going downhill and Apple's going downhill, sadly. But that's another discussion. <laughs> and I can buy income property. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Buy income properties with your stock instead. But, you know, it can tell you if that person has a slip and fall or what their activity level is and all kinds of stuff. So you can really keep an eye on people from a distance now, which is very handy for a family to, to be able to do that. And it can send an alert if there's a problem, you know, to, to other family members or a circle of concern, if you will. So a lot of options there. Evan, we've got to get to George, but, you know, just anything you want to share with us before we turn it over to George about the market, about what's going on, about what uh, buyers are saying and, you know, anything that's happening out there? Um, yeah, my, my buyers, they're just loving these low interest rates and are, you know, excited about uh, investing right now. I've had some great conversations. I've had a lot of conversations with with people who uh, work overseas and who are actually moving. I've got a couple of clients who are moving back to the U.S. and excited they're going to rent and they're using what they would use for a down payment to buy income properties and because they've been listening to you. And uh, so I've just, I've had some great conversations the past few weeks. Good stuff. Good stuff. No, it's, it's a very active time in the market. No question about it. And, you know, things are happening. So if you need us, reach out at jasonhartman.com. If you're in the U.S., you can always call us on the good old-fashioned telephone at 1-800-HARTMAN. And a couple resources I just want to give to people. Of course, the Meet the Masters recordings are available. And that's at jasonhartman.com slash recordings. Recordings, and then the very popular asset protection and estate planning webinar is available at jasonhartman.com slash asset. That's jasonhartman.com slash asset. The attorney from that webinar gave an excellent, excellent presentation, not really a presentation, but more of just a Q&A session last Friday. And anybody who uh, purchases his program and enrolls in that can get a copy of this and get access to that recording. And it was great. We went for about an hour and a half and he just answered all sorts of questions from people. So really good stuff. Again, that webinar is available for you this week at jasonhartman.com slash asset and protect those assets. All right, Evan, thanks for joining me for the intro portion. And let's get to part one of George Gammon. 
It's a great pleasure to have George Gammon back on the show. He is a real estate investor, a investor in all kinds of things, and a fantastic macroeconomics educator. It's always great to have him on the show. George, welcome back. How are you? Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you. And you are coming to us from Billionaire's Row in St. Bart's, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. That's I tell people that I'm, I'm the poorest person here by a mile. Yeah. When I first got to the island, I looked around. And I said, "My goodness, I, I need a like a St. Bart stimulus check somehow." <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're going to get one there. No, no, not going to get yeah. one here. That's for sure. But uh, so, no, it's, it's a beautiful place, and I came here just because I didn't want to deal with any lockdowns. And the restaurants are open, the gyms are open. I'm going to go to the gym after we talk, and uh-huh. it's it's nice to just have some sense of normalcy right now in a in a very crazy world. Are, are there any cases there or is it just totally clear? Uh, like, you know, there's there's no, is there any precaution there at all or is it just normal living? There are some precautions. Uh, when you go to the grocery store, they make you wear a mask. Some restaurants require that you wear a mask when you're like walking to the bathroom, you know, that, that crazy stuff. It's kind of weird because the the, the French government has a, a little bit of say, but the people here, for the most part, really don't like the French government, mm-hmm. and they, they just try to kind of ignore them. But technically, like they're supposed to give a restaurant a ticket if the people aren't wearing a mask to the table. But very few restaurants even acknowledge those rules. So it's uh, the, the main thing is you got to wear a mask when you're going to the grocery store. Other mm-hmm. than that, you're pretty much good to go. Pretty good. How did St. Bart's and I, I, you know, I don't know if you've studied it much. I know you're there. You've been there maybe, what, a month and a half now or something. But how did St. Bart's become this sort of, you know, really high-end Caribbean destination? I mean, it's not, I never hear about it as a tax haven or an asset protection haven. I hear more about, you know, Cayman or Nevis in that regard, and, and certainly other places around the world too, like Jersey, et cetera. But um, why St. Bart's? Well, I think for, for the Europeans and, and the French, it is a tax haven. It's mm-hmm. very similar to Monaco. Okay. It's just Monaco and the Caribbean, basically. Okay, but I, I think the catalyst was Rockefeller. Uh, mm-hmm. Rockefeller built a huge house here that's over by this beach where I, I go snorkeling. It's, I think it's been abandoned for, for several decades, mm-hmm. but it's still there. And uh, he he was the first person to kind of make it popular, I guess, with kind of mm-hmm. that that crowd. Since it's just it's a very little island. There's maybe nine thousand people here. The people are quite literally the most pleasant group of people I've ever met in my life. Uh, they're mm-hmm. not just nice; they're very courteous mm-hmm. and just very welcoming as well. And I think that combined with it's a it's, it's very nice. I mean, a lot of the, the Caribbean islands, you go downtown and it, it's it's very oh, down and yeah. it's, it's not a terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the beaches are great and the oceans are, are great. But you go to the in town, you're like, man, this is this is not it, awesome. It's a, it's a slum in a lot of those yeah. places. I mean, it really is a total slum and a high crime and all kinds of you know, yeah. problems. Saint, but St. Saint- yeah, Saint Bart's is the complete opposite. Yeah. Not only is the downtown area just gorgeous. There is, there's nothing here that you would consider a slum. And the crime is, for the most part, just non-existent to the extent that, I mean, nobody here locks their doors. Nobody. And I mean, your car, when you go out to a restaurant, Mm -hmm. most people just leave the keys in the car. They just leave them in the ignition. When I went ocean swimming yesterday out to these cliffs where I go uh, cliff diving, 
And I just left on the beach. I just left my briefcase just right on a rock with uh, my laptop of my phone, which has wow. all my credit cards in it with my yeah. keys. I didn't even think twice. Didn't wow. even think twice. Interesting. It doesn't really exist here. So that combined with everything else. And then you've got a lot of celebrities that come here because they don't get hassled. I know a lot of you know singers and artists and whatnot have gotten married here. And I know during the, I heard a statistic the other day from a guy at a, at a cocktail party that during uh, New Year's, like some crazy number, like 90% of the super yachts mm-hmm. in the entire world are here in St. Bart's. Wow. New Year's. It's a very popular place. I won't name any names, but a, a mutual friend of ours has a, a property here that uh, he rents out during the holiday season, which is the, the high season here. Right. I know so, who you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We won't name any names because I, I don't, you know, I don't want to throw out his uh, his numbers or anything. But he, he rents it out for uh, six figures per week. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's that type of place. You sent me an image from your phone, a screenshot of a map with uh, properties for lease or rent there. And yeah. I couldn't believe the prices. They were super expensive. But like I'll bet you... Just on Airbnb, I think that was. Yeah, prices were astronomical. But I'll bet you the rent-to-value ratios aren't very good because I bet you the value of those properties is just astronomical even more so than the rents. It, um, it's still... A, no, it's still... A, no, the RV ratios, you can get a... You yeah. can get a good RV ratio here. The problem you can is, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, who's got twenty million to drop on a property? Right. Uh, but believe it or not, I mean, if well, got, you mean a good RV RV ratio in favor of the tenant, right? I yeah, right. not no, no, as a no. landlord. Oh, as a landlord? Oh yeah. Oh, that's amazing on expensive properties. I wouldn't have thought. Yeah. Yeah. As an example, if you've got, I mean, if you know what you're doing, mm-hmm. if you've got let's say seven million mm-hmm. in a property. You can make seven hundred grand a year on that. Yeah. Net. Well, you got to get seventy thousand a month for one percent of seven million, right? So. Well, you're getting six, yeah. you're getting six figures a week yeah. during the high season. Yeah. Right. 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 Well, that's vacation rentals too. So you know more more volatility potentially. But right now, given the fact that you don't have lockdowns there, it's an attractive place for wealthy people. So, you know that skews the the thing too. But very interesting. Well, hey, the other very courteous place that I've been, and I think you've been there too, is Japan. And, you know, you did a a fantastic YouTube video recently, and another one where you're talking to Peter Schiff, and and then you were talking about the the Federal Reserve and what they don't want us to know and so forth. And I thought I'd like to ask you, because I talk about Japan quite a bit on my show, it's a really interesting economic story. You know, they've been saddled with, you know, what used to be called the lost decade, then it became the lost two decades, and now it's into the lost three decades. Uh, And then they had, you know, Abe economics, which, you know, many people have heard of, and, and they've got a, a, a real demographic disaster in that they're just not having kids, and the population is aging, obviously, and in 70 to 100 years, if, if they don't have kids or immigration, Japan literally won't exist. You can't have a country if you don't have people, right? So, but it's fascinating because people have really downplayed Japan saying that, look, their debt to GDP ratio is the highest in the in the modern world. It's 230% debt to GDP. And just to give people a reference point, and I haven't checked it lately, but I think even into all this craziness now, it's gotten worse, but the U.S. is around 100% or approaching 100% debt to oh, GDP. Oh, it's more than that now. Okay. Yeah, no, um, we're in these four plus trillion dollar deficits. The U.S. deficit just this year 
will be the same as the total amount of debt accumulated from 1776 to 2000. <laughs> yeah, I have to laugh at that. It's so absurd. It's so totally absurd. It's it's beyond, uh, I mean, it's just beyond comprehension, frankly. So we'll talk about that. But, you know, we were talking off air about Japan, and I'd just like you to touch on that for a moment, in that the debt to GDP ratio does not necessarily bode so badly for Japan, as one might think, right? Well, it hasn't caused hyperinflation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, well, the opposite, actually, right? Yeah, yeah, it's called, uh, it's it's caused mild deflation, Mm -hmm. which I think is when a a country gets that over indebted, I think kind of just a very slow grind deflation like that is Mm -hmm. is probably a best case scenario. If you look at history, when you get a debt problem, it's just there's no easy way out of it. I mean, Dr. Lacey Hunt talks about this all the time. You either have to have austerity, you've got to have, you've got to inflate away the debt, or unfortunately, sometimes the way to get out of it is is a war. But there just is is no easy way out. If you overconsume, if you consume more than you produce for a long period of time, at some point, you've got to Mm underconsume. That's just the way it works. There's no financial engineering <laughs> yeah. that gets you around just a, a basic uh, thought experiment if you were stranded on an island and you had, I always use the thought experiment that if you're stranded on an island with a suitcase full of a billion dollars, are you rich? I don't think so because mm-hmm. there's no goods or services. Right. So, so anyway, uh, going back to Japan, what most people see is they say, well, you know, how come they haven't had uh, inflation or hyperinflation? And therefore, if they've done quantitative easing, if they've done all these things for the past three decades or plus, you know, why can't the United States do the same thing? And uh, the United States could do the same thing, but there are no certainties. There are always probabilities. So you have to look at, at the facts and how the economies are set up and then weigh the probabilities for yourself. So there are dramatic differences. Uh, first and foremost is the savings rate in Japan is staggering. I mean, it's almost 30%. And so if you have your your population saving that much money and not spending it into circulation, your velocity gets so low that it's, it's, I'm not going to say that it's hard to have um, inflation, but you're not going to get it as easily. And then most people would see inflation as the value of the currency going down in relationship to goods and services or to other currencies. And there's always a bid for the yen because they're a net exporter. Mm-hmm. So what happens is when, when you've got two countries that are trading between one another, the one that is producing more stuff, more goods, and exporting those goods, they're going to have a trade surplus. And therefore, there's going to be more demand for those currencies from the countries who are, who are buying their goods, right? Where the opposite is true if you've got a trade surplus, then what you're doing is you're exporting more of your currency units. And therefore, at some time, if all else being equal, the value of those currency units relative to other countries is going to go down. Uh, the reason that hasn't happened with the United States is because obviously we're, we're the world reserve currency and the world runs on dollars. And therefore, there's, there's a bid for these dollars to do business outside of the United States, regardless of what's happening with our domestic economy or how much goods and services we, or how little 
uh, goods we're actually producing and exporting. Yeah, the, the U.S. is in a pretty enviable position, at least for the time being. And you can really break a lot of rules when you're in the position the U.S. is in. You can defy gravity. The only question is, for how long? I want to show yeah. you a chart real quick, George. And also, uh, and, it the economy. Most What's people that? don't don't really think that through. So I, I would argue that it that it massively distorts the economy as well. Mm-hmm. So going back to an interview with Lacey Hunt on a, I, I want to give them props. Uh, Grant Williams, who's just mm-hmm. a fantastic guy, just interviewed him for my channel, and Bill Fleckenstein did an interview called The End Game, or their podcast is called The End Game. This episode mm-hmm. was Dr. Lacey Hunt, and he talks about they talk about a debt jubilee. Mm-hmm. And I think as a thought experiment, that that's a great way for us to get our heads around what happens to an economy when you overconsume. It's not just the debt, like the Keynesians and the MMT people would say, well, if the Fed could just buy all of the treasuries, as an example, then on the asset side of the Fed's balance sheet, you'd have, let's say, whatever, 27 trillion in treasuries. And then on the the liability side of the government's balance sheet, you'd have the same 27 trillion in treasuries. Well, okay, just click a button and erase it. Right. Everything's just like an NBA scoreboard, right? You just scoreboard from 100 all the way down to zero, and you just start all over again. And the Fed keeps spending money and and the economy grows as a result of this government spending. But what's absent in, in that line of thinking is what has happened to the economy as a result of the government spending all that money in the first place. Mm-hmm. So as an example, with the United States, government spending now is over 50% of GDP, over That's 50%. Absolutely so, and, you know, insane. Yeah, so <laughs> half mean, your economy yeah. is government spending, and we know government doesn't produce anything. Right, yeah, they, they yeah, just- uh, Especially on net balance. Right, yeah, so right. they're not producing anything. So 50% of this, so that doesn't go away, right? Mm-hmm. So even if they're able to start from zero again, the only thing that happens is that gets worse. It gets it goes from 50% to 60%. Right. So the, if the quote unquote, how rich an economy is, is based on the amount of goods and services that are actually being produced, right. and not the currency units that are just being right. printed, at some point it just, it comes home to roost regardless of whether you have a debt jubilee or not. Another great example would be all the zombie corporations right. in Japan. If Japan had a debt jubilee, those zombie corporations would still be there. Yeah, no, that that's all fascinating. Before you go on too much, I just shared my screen a moment ago, and I just want you to see this because it's it's sort of interesting and it sort of goes to this like whole dysfunctional system we have. If you look at the personal savings rate in the U.S., it's always been you know fairly low. Americans yeah, are criticized no, for keep in mind, saving this, enough. This is yeah. like the CPI as well. Right. Yeah, I've done yeah. a video. I've done the video on how they. Uh, measure of course, I, I I don't it's deny that it's bogus, manipulated bogus, and, and, bogus. and, and, so, and wrongly you'll stated. notice that they changed it. I think they changed it back in 2015, right around there, Jason. But prior, it mm-hmm. was like four, like three, four percent, and then it just yeah. hopped right up to seven. That was because of, of the finagling of the numbers. So let's okay. let's. But, but, but they didn't change it this year. So the benchmark, relatively speaking, is all we're looking at. And it's just interesting to notice how much money people are saving when they're in lockdown, (laughs) because they're not out spending money, right? So you see here, we're looking at February, uh, March area right here, you know, and it's, it's, it's offering around, you know, 7.78%, something like that. And then the savings rate just 
skyrockets. Yeah. You know, and Buzz Lightyear. And and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to infinity yeah. and beyond. And you know, they're getting an extra six hundred dollars. Uh, you know, like paying them not to work, right? And then you see, as the lockdowns are lifted, the savings rate starts to plummet a little bit as people go out and they buy an RV. They buy a boat, they go out to some restaurants. They're not going on airplanes, but they're doing vacationing with RVs. Like RV sales are through the roof. Yeah. You know, and so uh, is people are boarding goods because everyone's buying camping gear. Yeah, right, right. So people are doing domestic vacations, right? So this is just kind of interesting. I just thought I'd, I'd share that. Well, I think um, I think they're doing domestic vacations and they're also getting out of Dodge. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, I don't know if you saw what happened to like Rand Paul last night and I mean, it's just bananas in urban areas in the United States right now, especially in blue states. I got a lot of buddies that are even in uh, red states that have bought RVs and they lived in kind of even suburban urban areas. And they're like, listen, I'm out. I can work from my computer. I'm going to go out to like Sholo, Arizona, as an example. And uh, I'm just going to sit here in a campsite with Wi-Fi and just when we have 5G, as long as you have a tower close to you, those towers need to be plentiful and close to you. And now there's a whole bunch of theories about 5G and the health side effects I won't go into, but that will make internet just plentiful, mobile, you know, super fast. Tell us though about this savings chart. What was the manipulation and when was it? 2015? Because, you know, this this goes back that far. And by the way, this is from the St. Louis Fed. But yeah. just tell us about the manipulation. We talk about unemployment number manipulation a lot. You and I both do that. Uh, obviously, the CPI, consumer price index, inflation metrics manipulated massively. But what yeah. about the savings rate? I'd have to go back and look at my notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know the year right off the top of my head. Okay. I, I, this is a video I probably did four or five months ago. Uh-huh. I remember with the, the manipulation of the rate, though, it had to do with the fact of how the IRS estimates what you're not paying them. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so it's just a completely <laughs> obscure, like objective or subjective number. Uh-huh. And okay. that, that when I read it, I'm like... I think it was the reason it didn't make any sense to me whatsoever is because it only calculated what people are not paying them mm-hmm. and it didn't calculate how much people are overpaying them. Okay. Which yeah, I would argue people overpay far more than they underpay. You know, the IRS always says, oh, you know, if Americans paid the, the tax that they should or people underpay by 500 billion a year or something like that, mm-hmm. that is, but all they're doing is they're looking at the people that underpay. They're not looking at it on net balance. They don't look at all the people who overpay because they don't want you to know about that. In fact, I talked to Robert Barnes, who's a good buddy of mine. He was the lawyer for Alex Jones against Twitter. He's a free speech, you know, constitutional lawyer, represented Wesley Snipes against the IRS and whatnot. Uh So he's got a lot of knowledge with these IRS cases. And, you know, we, we talked about how many people actually overpay. And he's saying he went through some of these deductions that I've never even heard of. And I've been audited five times. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, I've never, you know, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, you know, you have a little bit more, a better understanding sure. as to what, especially as a real estate guy, yeah. as to what's deductible and not. And he was going down this list of things that I have never even heard of. Uh-huh. So I can almost promise you that 90% of the people, especially if they're just going out there to H&R Block mm-hmm. or using some sort of software program, yeah. that they're not taking the all the deductions that they qualify for, not mm-hmm. even close to it. So anyway. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's uh, you know, 70 some odd thousand pages of tax code, I guess it lasts last time I knew, and it's it's just super complicated. And you know, there's so much manipulation. I mean, in 2006, I think it was, they stopped publishing M3. It's just a moving target to try and figure out the economy because the powers that be want to just hide everything from the hoi polloi, us, us little people. This will be continued on the next episode. Thank you for listening and happy investing. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.